The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're continuing on with our post-draft analysis here. And boy, we've had a lot of good shows, good guests. And Jeff Brune here to join us for yet another show. This one about what he has gleaned in terms of Eric DaCosta's philosophy with regard to this draft. Some from print, some from action, which I think is often the more important. But Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Ken? 
Uh, happy to be talking football again with you, Jeff. The last show was a blast, and we want to make sure people have uh, you know a couple of decent shows to listen to if they uh, if they have the time. Uh, Eric DaCosta, interesting draft. Certainly started off as an enormous value draft. Uh, and then morphed into more of some needs in the fourth round, particularly the punter pick is certainly a need pick. But hey, tell us what you gleaned in terms of uh, philosophically how you would uh, assign EDC categorically here. Yeah. So I, I sense a real sh- – uh, well, from what he said, there's a real shift in the fourth round from what he's done. I think the exception is what you just said, said the stout pick, the punter pick was a need pick and strategic, but otherwise he talked in the interview that he gave um, on the lounge. He said that this year, you know, not surprisingly, he wanted to put a lot of thought into how he approached the fourth round. And so he, he talked to a lot of people, including one of the, uh, executives in the or, or, Orioles, who he said influenced him, him a lot. And what he decided to do this year, and what I think is not only surprising, but I think it it represents a de- it may be a departure, is that he really even in the fourth round he decided to go total BPA, and he said his approach, what somebody s- said to him, and what he decided to do was to quote treat each pick as an island unto itself. And I want to talk, I want to expand on that because I think that that means a lot of things. And he talked about all of them. It's not just a sort of BPA as an island. Um, it means, f- f- first of all, the BPA, what we think of as that is mm-hmm. draft as if you don't have any need, needs. Don't imagine the need when you have a draft. I think that that's, you know, what a lot of people have thought of about the the Ravens over the years for the early rounds. But and and I remember on the very good round 10 table that you put together during the draft, um, you went around and asked everyone and pretty much everyone had agreed that in those first three rounds, they were glad it was BPA, but that they wanted and expected in the fourth round for there to be a shift to from BPA to needs. Mm-hmm. And DaCosta, except for the stout pick, um, did not f- follow that. And and he, I think that we not only see that from the action in five out of the six pit, picks, but he explained it and explained how he came to it. And um, BPA, it, in addition to um, to to not to to drafting as if you have no need, needs, one thing that surprised me me they said was that it means that you ignore your scheme fit, fits. And um, he said that um, often if you if you draft players based on who you think is going to is going to fit into your scheme, you're going to miss somebody with a lot of talent. So he said he decided to draft regardless of scheme. Um, I'm wondering if you have any comments on that. Yeah. I mean, I think the Linderbaum pick in particular is, is a uh, interesting uh, pick from a scheme perspective. First of all, if, if you believe Linderbaum is the best center in the draft and he's a zone center, he's too, he, he, he doesn't fit a power scheme or all this, 
I think that's largely bullcrap because uh, a good center who's quick to reach for a block is valuable in any scheme. And that's Linderbaum's main asset. He's obviously got very significant hurdle to overcome in terms of arm length. But but his ability to get the back end of double teams or to pass off a double team to a to a guard who's staying behind and move to level two, that can help any scheme. You know, mm-hmm. what what he can do to get out in front of a screen pass is something that's new. The Ravens haven't had that. They haven't had a, a really quick lineman who can get out there in space. Even Linderbaum will look slow and probably a little lungy relative to, say, a Miles Boykin out there who's able to you know, maintain his feet extremely well when he blocks. Uh, even so, though, having even one such player really helps. But I think it's often really overstated, and I'm glad DaCosta kind of backed it up a little bit, that scheme, you need to really consider scheme, particularly of an offensive lineman, when you're considering whether or not you, you uh, want to draft them or not. Yeah. I mean, I know it's in, in all the lead up to this. I mean, everybody, when they talk about scheme fit, fits, when they're talking about the offensive line as well as the defensive line. So there were all those debates. Does Well, this guy is great at penetrating at the at the tackle. But he seems more like one more like a one gap gapper instead of a two gap play, player. Yeah. And, and I admit I've been on that side, especially since the Jernigan pick, which I I felt like he was a great player, but not made for our scheme. But um, DaCosta clearly is not going that way. He said specifically that if if you are scheme fun focused when you get ready when you're getting ready for the draft it makes it hard to find the high ceiling guys right that that seems that would make sense to me because you're eliminating players from the pool i i i'm gonna i'm gonna delineate scheme from position on the defensive line and and say that your 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 tech you play and mm-hmm. and and what you could be projected to play differently because you know we project offensive linemen to you know tackles who might end up playing center in the NFL guards who might end up playing center tackles who end up playing guard quite a lot um, but you but you don't necessarily think of that in the same way with defensive linemen and with defensive linemen um, there are very big differences between say a zero slash one tech and a guy who can play five tech for example mm-hmm. this that's a very significant difference but. The the position that is overcrowded there in terms of size and shape is the three tech spot. Other than that, I don't really have a lot of of you have to be of a particular scheme. Brandon Williams, they forced him out to three tech when they got Michael Pierce. They found a way to have two great run stuffers on the field. And I think we're going to see the same thing with uh, uh, with uh, Travis Jones mm-hmm. uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And Michael Pierce, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I thought the next um, interesting point in the way that he was defining his BPA philo- philosophy and how expansive it is that was interesting was that you not only ignore the needs of your, ro- your roster, ignore what you see as scheme fits, but thirdly, that you ignore the draft picks that are taken so far. And um, he was... He, this was his response specifically to a question about taking two receiver tight ends in the fourth round. round. And he said, um, you don't think about the combination of picks that you've made. Just focus on the best player available at the time. 
So he said when, you know, when Calvin Austin went off the board, they looked at the board and they saw that Likely was on there. And Likely actually wasn't rate was rated similarly, but obviously a little bit below Kolar. And they did see them as similar kinds of players. But he said, I um, decided to follow through with that philosophy and draft regardless of combinations or regardless of who I had taken before that pick. I think that's an okay philosophy to have in round four, round five, round six, day three. It would not be okay to draft a quarterback in the first round and in the second <laughs> round. It would not be okay. Yes. And and it would probably not be okay to go tight end, tight end in the first two rounds. It's just too much yeah. of your value stacked into one position. And as much as you know, need has been played down and BPA played up, the Ravens still ended up with five defensive players, five offensive players, and one special teams player, as you pointed out on our last show. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you wouldn't go a tight end first and second round. Would you go a tight end first round and then do it again third round if and say then, Mark, hope to get Mark Andrews, Andrews was still and, on the board? Because yeah. <laughs> well, they they did exactly that. Yeah, they did, and uh, and it was uh, Andrews was a third or fourth overall third. pick in that in that oh, round. I forget I if he was, was before or after Orlando, but they were he was in the third round, right? right somewhere in, in the range. middle of the third, I think. Um, the next point that he made about, um, his philosophy was that you draft planet players, best planet player means players with high upside, high ceiling. So that's like a corner, like Armour Davis, who, yeah, maybe he's got a lower floor because of, in this case, injury concerns, but you're not going to get the perfect guy in the fourth round, but mm-hmm. his ceiling is so high. But he, but what was interesting in that was how he defined a high ceiling. And he said a high ceiling usually means those who can affect the passing game. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, go ahead, Ken. Very consistent with the second round pick of Ajabo because Ajabo was not a need pick for 2022 because I don't believe he's going to be able to get on the field and be a really productive player this year. I think he, it'll be largely a developmental year for him. It pro, it might have been even if he were healthy, but yes, you know, not, totally not being healthy to start the year, it certainly limits the chance of him having a big year. And I really think of his, his career starting as opening day, 2023. I know he's, yeah, they're going to try and do whatever they can in terms of getting him to work, but it's, it's a, it's a, again, a case of, going for that high ceiling player yeah. and armor Davis, you know, fits the same uh, mold there. I, I, I like it. I think he's, he's being honest and consistent about it. Um, and I agree this because the tail of talent on the right end is, is can be very far taking that high ceiling player is generally a, a, a great move. Yeah. And one of the D and this is also about the fourth round round later. I want to talk about, how that applies to the first round round in general in his philosophy. Um, but one thing that he said about seeing about that high upside, high ceiling guy, meaning one who can affect the passing game. He said that um, his analytics guys came and said, 
and made the case um, that safeties and tight ends, if you take the right kind, and this is why he said he didn't take a a, a receiving tight end and a blocking t- tight end who would have been more complementary picks. He took two re- receiving ones because they have the potential to affect the passing game in a way that a blocker, blocking tight end does not. And he said that the analytics guys came to him and made this and made a very strong case that safeties and tight ends are undervalued because there are certain kinds of safeties, obviously, free mm-hmm. safeties and certain kinds of tight ends who can affect the passing game, not quite as much as receivers and corners, but much more so than how they're valued by the other team. So he said, and you know, it made sense. They got a, a safety who will affect the passing game and who was definitely undervalued as he fell to 14. Um, and um, he thought the tight ends was the same thing too. Like he would have preferred a corner, an equal athlete at the corner or the receiver, but those guys were overdrafted. And he said at one point that this year, the receivers he thought was good at the top, but not as strong as the last couple of years in the middle rounds anyway. Right. I I agree. I think that was one of the real surprising things was the receivers all coming off the board between eight and 12, four of them. And we, we really thought as Ravens fans, you know, we were screaming. Yes. For every (laughs) one of those that that was taken. We didn't know yet, but uh, But it worked out. Yeah, it did. It did. It worked out. And and I think you're you're also right that that free safety I've always considered to be a, a premium position. It's very very difficult to get a ball hawking free safety outside of that first round. You can you can do it. You can get really lucky sometimes, but it's it's unusual that, that you're able to do it. And uh, to me, the, the the position carries a premium, a first round premium on it. Uh, I think the analytics also are probably not completely capturing. Uh, how those safeties impact the game. I think we're going to see some of that this year. I'm really excited to. There's been a lot of discussion of that, about safeties being undervalued in the national press Mm -hmm. also. Um, There was, when he said that about um, defining high ceiling as players who can affect the passing game, I actually immediately thought of you dancing a jig, thinking like, Oh God! This means there won't be another Ben Mason pick in the fifth <laughs> round. round. Um, because if he, I mean, and, but seriously though, I mean, I think that you know he was describing this as starting from scratch and building his philosophy this year. And if you were to compare that with picking Ben Mason last year, it does. I think that there really is a transition, at least in the later round picks and how he decided to to approach it this year yeah i, I mean ben mason would have been under consideration under that new philosophy he's described right i i will not make excuses for them about the ben mason pick and i know that, that this is one thing i've heard from other reporters in the area that they were done with the draft they didn't have anybody they wanted i mean if they didn't have anybody they wanted they didn't probably didn't do a good enough job scouting but they were there were defensive linemen that were available and they had a terrifically old unit of, on the defensive line. I mean, they literally, if they had taken Chris Tonga last year, then they might've not had to, to um, bring in Michael Pierce for the money they paid him. So I mean, they, they had options that really could have helped the club. Uh, it, it's just, it, 
it was it was a breakdown in how they approached the draft uh, with that fifth round last year. Hmm. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I think that's. You know, going back to risk. So, I mean, I think you know he explained pretty well the way he approaches the fourth round. I think that what we don't know as much, and what I've been sort of wondering the past couple of years, that I don't think we've gotten total. We've gotten some hints of, but not clear clarity on, is whether he's shifted philosophy in terms of risk aversion at the top of the draft. And what I mean by that is, um, Ozzy used to always say, um, make sure that you hit it, that you hit a double. So mm-hmm. don't swing for the fences, but at least get somebody who you know is going to have a high floor and do well. And to me, the ultimate pick that epitomized that was Courtney Upshaw because mm-hmm. he was so solid. I mean, that he came in, he started his first year right off the bat. And in the Super Bowl, as a rookie, he was the one who was making the calls at the line, but he never, and, and they picked him, I think they, they, I, they traded out of the first, but they picked him somewhere in like 34 or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I believe, but, um, but he never, but it, you know, so that was where Ozzy was sure I'm going to get a double. I'm not swinging for the fences kind of thing. So when DaCosta came in, I, his first pick was Marquise mm-hmm. and, especially if the Ravens are drafting the first round, that doesn't seem like a guaranteed double based on our, based on our <laughs> history. And so I was kind of ever since that Brown pick, I've been looking to see, is this a turn away from, from Aussie or not? And I think there's some suggestion that maybe, but I don't think that it's clear. And so looking at what he did, the year after Patrick Queens seemed like it, it was Big a swing. he didn't have the production for sure. And so that seemed to represent a departure. I think that last year actually gives a little bit less clarity. I mean, he did take a receiver. I think I think that Bateman actually had a I saw him as having a higher floor with the Ray, the Ravens than Marquise Brown. But I think that the other one, I think. Oh, wait, I don't think gives us a lot of clarity. Some people saw him as as high risk because of his lack of production. But they ignored the fact that his floor was so high. His floor was cut was Courtney Upshaw because he was almost that good in run defense. Yeah, I I, I guess I, I wouldn't how I would term it is I wouldn't say that Courtney Upshaw is a particular high floor for who you're gonna get in the first round. That's that would actually be very disappointing. If you if you got Courtney Upshaw, Courtney Upshaw ended up leaving the Ravens, by the way, with more personal fouls than sacks over, <laughs> yeah. over his career. So it didn't it really didn't work out that pick. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, it wasn't as bad as, say, Mount Cody, but it was or, or Sergio Kindle, but it was not it's, a good pick either. Yeah, but I think I mean, yeah, it's not but it's not a bust. And he did make a valuable con- contribution to a Super Bowl winning team. Um, I think that I think that this year gives, especially in terms of the first pick, gives us no clarity on that question because Hamilton has such a high floor and such a high ceiling. We have right. no way of knowing which one was more important to to him. And then in terms of you know, Ojabo is definitely you know 
high, high ceiling, lower floor, but he was also, you also had three picks in the first 45. So I think that's, uh, it's, I, think it's, that's I still- can't, I, I'm going to stop you for a second. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I will not, you know, again, if they had a lot of draft capital and they decided to waste some of it, not that's not acceptable. And I'm not calling the a Jabo pick a risk. I'm sorry, a waste. I'm just saying the same parameters of risk need to exist for that as exists for your other other place. Unless you're going to specifically play, I'm going to take one high floor guy. I'm going to take one high ceiling guy. I'm going to take one double. You know, that's going to be right in the middle that I, that that I want. I don't think that they really did that. I think they they thought. We got three guys. We got two guys from a value perspective we love, and I think if if I were to categorize the Ajabo pick, they said he's a very high ceiling guy. You rarely get a chance to this guy at forty five. We'll hope this works out. Yeah, and and that the, you know two and a half years of production from him will be more special than what you get in the, in a full four from somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Um. Can we go back for a second to the previous sure. Ravens picks of the DaCosta era? I just wanted to do that really quickly. But the, the Marquise Brown pick, I, I think, fits the description of being a much broader variance, much yeah. wider risk player. Uh, than I think I think you said that the Queen pick, uh, he, he hadn't played a whole lot of inside linebacker in college. Huge premium associated with the position in general is kind of bought in at the top of the market in terms of inside linebacker premium being paid. Uh, another one and size gave him a potentially lower floor as well there you go so so it's a he's another high variance player that you know we've uh we've we've seen so far what we've seen in two years um and then uh, adafi owe um yeah i wouldn't i i he's definitely not as low a four floor player as the others at least from from the way i would have seen it we're For i know sure. when we did the show we were happy with the production he'd had in college but um trait wise speed wise he is an absolute freak he is a, he is a, a a rare athlete rare unique athlete and amazing at setting the edge like mm-hmm. everybody's focused on the pass game but then when they went went back i mean i think you know it's a very different kind of player than Ojabo if if there are questions about whether mm-hmm. because there wasn't a question because of his ability to play the run there was never a fear that he wasn't going to be able to get snaps and be trying right. tr- trusted to be on the field whereas like a Tim Tim Williams didn't have that high floor because he wasn't seen as a person who could who who could set the edge and make all those decisions that that Oa had demonstrated back in college. You know, that's a great point because when you have that ability to play run defense, as opposed to being a pure situational pass rusher coming on the edge, it allows a team to figure out how to layer your responsibilities very quickly. Upshaw came in and played the run very well as a rookie. You mentioned that. Owe came in and he was an early down player as needed, but they were able to layer his responsibilities in. And, you know, this year he's learned so much in his first year. He's proved to have such a good work ethic that was obviously one of the downfalls of Tim Williams that in his second year, they're probably going to ask him to play Sam linebacker. They're going to ask him to take up a big coverage role because of the absence of Bowser to start the year. Yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, pure pat, pure pass run rushers. They have had a lower floor with the Ravens, it seems. And I, I don't know the early, early history as well. I mean, I started mm-hmm. becoming a big fan about 
2010 or so. Um, yeah, I think it was in 2010 or two. Where and Suggs were but, big successes. But yeah, but, but, uh, so I'm thinking of, um, of the guy who then went to the Raiders, who's now gone. Um, Ngakwe? Yeah, yeah, Ngakwe and, and, and Williams are the most recent ones. Um, so the one thing, so earlier I talked about, um, you know, DeCasa has revealed so much this year, so much more than in the past. It's really been a surprise. And, but it's been strategic because there are certain things he keeps a lid on. And I think in the previous show, I talked about how he doesn't talk about how he collects intelligence about where other teams are going to pick because he sees a marginal advantage in that and not sharing it. The other thing he keeps, he's keeping a pretty tight lid on is, is analytics. And we know that he's turned to analytics a lot. We know that he's hired a lot of people, that they're on somewhere upstairs in the castle. He talks to them a lot. He uses them a lot. But we don't know much of the specifics. The only thing he did, he did say that he that they told him um, that safeties and tight ends were being undervalued. But they're doing a lot of stuff. And Peter King specifically mentioned that he was not allowed to report on some of the analytics. I believe he's, mm -hmm. he had that in the, in the article. So that says to me, so, you know, he's come out now and talked very openly about how they pursue comp picks, which used to be a secret, but he said, but he's doing it because they don't see a marginal advantage. The information is out there. Some other teams are doing it and doing it well. And he said, we don't have an advantage. And the teams that aren't doing it, it's not because of lack of information. It's because they decided to go a different route. Mm -hmm. So when he's spilling the beans that on the way that they do the comp picks, he doesn't think he's giving up anything. So that's mm -hmm. why he's being open about how he built all those picks up for this 2022 dra draft. What's revealing to me and paying attention to not only what he reveals, but what are the absences? The big absence is how he's using analytics. And, you know, one area that I would, I mean, I think he's doing it for all kinds of stuff. I think he's telling him to go out and be mad, mad scientists and they're coming up with billions of things a day. But I'm sure that one thing that they're they're looking at is the injury risk. And that was something that I'm really interested in, and I just don't have a clue about it, is about if they've changed their philosophy about in, about in injury or if something in the analytics gave them a different approach to uh, OA. Because I'm thinking specifically back um, the Jalen Smith dra draft, when he was like going to be a top five player and then he was taken in the second round by the Cowboys after that terrible in injury. Um, one, it was either DaCosta or 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 Ozzy was shocked that he was taken at the top of the second round. Around, and they made the comment of, "Since when did a second round pick become a flyer?" <laughs> and so I thought it, that was the first thing I thought of when they took Ojabo. And my big question was. 
was did the Ravens change their philosophy on how to spend a second round pick or was it a difference in the injury or was it a difference in in treatment uh, in any kind of medicine that's advanced or is or have they learned something from the analytics that that made them identify this as a calculated worthy risk whereas the Jalen Smith thing would not have been and that you know that's one of the many many things that I know that they're looking at through their through their an- analytics but they are not saying a word about this is a, this is a really interesting way this is like a poker player's way of trying to read what Eric DaCosta is thinking about how he's how he's analyzing whether he, he uh, you know how, how he wants to move in a particular draft. Uh, it's a fascinating discussion because you know we can we can take individual things that we liked or disliked about the draft. We can break down you know elements of things like risk, but to really play it as as a what was he thinking when he made this change mm-hmm. is a very interesting way to do it. And and uh, these shows have been great, by the way, Jeff, really appreciate having you on for this. Uh, was there anything more? I don't want to cut you off if you had another point to make on this. That's uh, that's it. <laughs> All right. I, I, this was, I, well, I just want to say one more thing. Like this draft has just been a joy and mm-hmm. we should, like we should send out, savor this because I don't think it's ever going to be this fun again, because we're never going to have six picks in the fourth round, round again. And in addition, and, and be a post COVID year, year with this bigger pool of players and to be picking in the top half of each round instead of in the twenties. I mean, this was just, we hope that doesn't happen again. We hope so. (laughs) But even if it did, the other two are not, I mean, just to have this confluence. um, I mean, you know, I feel like this is, this is, yeah, this is just where if you ever wanted to make an, make an exit as a Ravens draft fan, now is the time because it's not (laughs) going to be this, this much fun again. The the other thing that I kind of like about this offseason in general and the draft as well is that with the Rams winning the Super Bowl with a basically yeah. spend the last dollar in your wallet philosophy. Okay, trade mm-hmm. every draft pick, spend every dollar you have in terms of cap. The future is now. Tomorrow we'll worry about tomorrow never. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it it seems like the fact that that's true and some of the wide receiver salaries we saw generated out yeah. of it, some of the value generated for Brown, um, I, I, I just believe that the Ravens have benefited and, and we'll see the benefits over the, over the course of years of them sticking to a philosophy that has now become contrarian, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that, that you know, it, 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 their philosophy was was i become largely, I think, embraced by the league, take best player available. There's always a, a bunch of teams that don't do it as well mm-hmm. as, as you do. You know, the notion that the picks are lottery pickets is one that I have a little bit of trouble with because they're more like entries into a poker tournament where a good player has, has a better chance to win with that same lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not if, – if you really think that any a fourth-round pick taken by any GM is a lottery ticket, and look, we've heard Eric DaCosta say so, really believe that that the Ravens don't think their fourth round picks are worth more, you're fooling yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, Jeff, outstanding to have you on again. Uh, tell folks, uh, you, you mentioned before in the last show, there really isn't any place to talk football with you, but hopefully we'll change that. Yeah, I, and- well, I see. I, I see. You asked me what my Twitter was. It's Jeff B 813-45164. I'm, I'm sure everyone will remember that. <laughs> 83564 8134564 yeah you're never going to find it okay uh, <laughs> if you look for jeff at jeff b8 you might be able to find him and and uh, and get him that way jeff uh, i appreciate you being on again other folks out there if you'd like to be on a film study short hit me with a dm on twitter i think you know the rules by now in terms of what i'm looking for narrow topic that we can get into some depth in about 30 minutes uh jeff thanks again for coming on Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. We'll talk to you next time on Film Study. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.